Sometimes that's hard to believe, isn't it, that everything is going to be all right, especially when we uh, experience storms in life. Um, Just this past week, maybe you read about that massacre at Tinley Park. Um, Five women were brutally murdered. They'd just gone into a women's clothing store. It was just going to be a normal day, just like we might be going over to you know, old farm to go into shopping. And uh, there was a gunman in the store, and uh, he had uh, five women abducted, bound them with duct tape, and um, put them in the back room. And he was just going to keep robbing customers as they come in. That was the plan. The manager called 911. The killer heard the dispatcher. The volume was turned up on her cell phone. The article says she tried to close the phone, and he shoots her, and then he just shoots the rest of them, 40 caliber bullet casings. It's so senseless. It's so senseless. And we wonder why, don't we? Philip Yancey is a Christian author who wrote, we are born slathered in blood and bodily fluids amid tears and cries of pain, We die in like manner, and in between birth and death, we ask, why? Why? We ask why every time the storm strikes. It's just natural. We ask why. We ask why every time there's a shopping mall shooting, every time there's a school shooting, every time there's a church shooting, every time a child is born with a disability, every time we bury one of our children, we ask the question, why? Why? And I think one of the issues that makes it so baffling and perplexing is that, well, some of the suffering that we face, we face because we have stiff-armed God for such a long time, and then we're just reaping the consequences of that. But that's not a lot of our suffering, is it, really? A lot of our suffering is we're walking the best that we know how according to God's ways. We're trusting Him as best as we know how. And then the storm ambushes us, and we're stumped by it, and we're having a hard time trying to figure it out. God, I'm, you know, I'm trying to walk the walk you want me to walk. I'm, you know, I'm doing the church thing. I'm doing the small group thing. I'm doing the, the daily quiet time thing. And yet, what is this that's going on? Why does this happen? A lot of our storms just stump us and baffle us. And church family, I think this is what makes the Old Testament book of Job such a relevant book in our lives because Job, and and we see ourselves in Job's life. We're just doing what we think God wants us to do then out out of... out of nowhere, we're ambushed and stumped. And so, and so I want us to begin a series of messages this morning, taking us up to Easter over the life of this amazing man of God, Job. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the Old Testament book of Job. Job chapter 1. Uh, you'll find... Just crack open your Bibles to the, and right about in the middle you'll find the book of Psalms and then flip backwards and in front of Psalms you'll find 
Keep flipping, you'll find the book of Job. Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, and you'll find, you'll find that if you're using your church Bibles on page 359. And I want us to look at chapters 1 and 2 this morning, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 5 to introduce ourselves to this amazing man. And, and let me just tell you why we're doing this between now and Easter. This is very important. Please look up here. It is my responsibility as your pastor to prepare you for the day of your calamity so that when that day comes, you will not curse God. But even beyond that, when the day of your calamity comes, you will worship him and you will give him praise. And instead of cursing his name, you will praise his name, even in tears, even in torn clothing, even in a shaved head. You will do that. And as we come to find out, this is, I mean, this is what authentic, true faith is about. So, Job chapter 1. Verses 1 through 5 say, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their sisters to eat and drink with them when a period of feasting had run its course. Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This, this was Job's regular custom. Now, there is so much that we don't know about the life of Job. Uh, we know it says that in the land of us, where is that? Where is the land of us? Well, I don't know how many commentaries I read this week that says the exact location is inconclusive. Well, but here's where we think it is, all right? Well, and here's where we think it is. That's where they thought it was. The land of us located, there's one of two locations, one in southeast of Israel in uh, an area that the Bible calls Edom, and then there's another location, and I couldn't find the slide for that, so just use your imagination, northeast of Israel, the land of Uz. What's important to note is not the exact location of where Uz is, but where it's not. And it's not in Israel proper. In other words, scholars, Bible teachers don't think that Job was an Israelite, or at least if he was an Israelite, he didn't live in Israel. He lived, he lived in the east, and the name Job itself uh, is an interesting name. His name is tied to his suffering. It's interesting. Let's look at some of the different definitions that I found when I was studying about 
Some think that his Job was kind of a nickname for enemy in that it's tied to his suffering. The way he was treated, it was as if he was an enemy of God. And we'll see. We'll see. And also, it's possible that his name could have simply meant repent. And that's what his friends certainly thought he should have done. And we'll, we'll get acquainted with those miserable comforters next week. And then, and I'm not even sure if this isn't the best way to understand his name. His name as a form of a question. Where is Father? Expressing his extreme cry for help in the midst of the most excruciating pain in his life. He wants to know where God is. He wants to know where God is. Where is Father? Well, what we do know is that in the land of us, wherever that is, this man named Job was the Warren Buffett of his day. He was the, Scripture says, the greatest man among all the people of the East. That means he was the wealthiest. And you can see his uh, holdings there in the first few uh, verses. I mean, those numbers do more than just quantify the catalog of his holdings. 7,000 sheep, 3,000. That's meant to signify his staggering wealth. He was an incredibly prosperous man. Imagine the amount of land that it took to support this kind of livestock, 7,000. And then it says 3,000 camels. What were camels used for? They were, they were they not used in caravan trade. Job was in the trucking business as well. 500 yoke of oxen. And look at all of the staff that it required. And a large number of servants. He was incredibly wealthy. And he had a wonderful, wonderful family uh, dynamic. A wonderful family life. His kids, they used to take turns holding family reunions at each of the boys' homes. And it was just a wonderful, healthy, spiritually centered, God-focused. In fact, Job, Job... Job, just because he, he wanted to make sure that, that everything was you know, on the up and up, he would send to have them purified after their feasts. It says, it says every morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering. By the way, this gives us a clue as to maybe when Job lived because it was during the period of the patriarchs, sometime between Abraham and Moses. You see, the patriarch would also function as the priest. And so here is Job functioning as a priest on behalf of his children. And he, and he was thinking, perhaps my children sinned and, you know, not overtly offended God, but in their hearts maybe. Maybe they offended God just in their hearts. And so he would, you know, offer a sack just to make, every, make sure everything was, was covered. And why would he do this? Well, well, he did this because of the most important piece of information we need to know about Job. And it's right there located in the very first verse. He was blameless. He was upright. He feared God. He shunned evil. Blameless, upright, feared God, shunned evil. Blameless, upright, feared. Three times in Job 1 and 2, we see this description about this man of God. He... <laughs> He was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. And let me just stop right here and talk about a very important principle. And it's simply this. What you do with what God gives 
never goes unnoticed by God. Never. What you do with your plant, it is a marvelous and beautiful and holy thing to see a man of God or a woman of God being faithful with all of the gifts that God has given him or her. And it is a wonder to behold in the eyes. We think about the things that impress us on earth. Let me tell you what impresses heaven. It's when, it's when a man of God or a woman of God is faithful and they're pious and they, try, and they love God and they love people with the abundance or lack thereof that God gives. Whatever it is God gives, they're faithful with that. Church family, that does not go unnoticed in the eyes of heaven. You understand that? Huh? And this is exactly what we see in verse 6. <laughs> because now the scene shifts from earth to heaven. It's an amazing thing we're about to see here in verse 6. It says, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. The council of spirit beings, angels, are summoned before the throne room of heaven where God is sovereign and God presides and God rules over all and he has summoned those angel beings and they appear and the scripture says, and Satan also came with them. Notice that Satan is not lumped in with the angels. He's separate. And yet he has been, now how it is that a fallen, evil, rebellious spirit being can ever stand before the holy God, I, I don't know, other than to communicate here that even the devil is God's devil. And when God summons Satan, Satan appears because God is sovereign and he's in control. Don't forget that. And in fact, the Lord even initiates a conversation. Huh? What's going on? What's up? Yeah. I know these contemporary translations. <laughs> Sup, dog? There we go. <laughs> Roaming? Roaming? Peter describes Satan as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Roaming? Just roaming? Like, a, like, a, like an, an SS officer seeking to detect any iota of disloyalty among God's people so that he can point the finger and accuse. That's what he does. And the Lord says, well, have you considered my servant Job? Have you seen him? He's, he's my man. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He shuns evil. He is my number. He is my servant. And by the way, that is a title. The most coveted, we talk about the coveted titles of earth. Doctor, professor, Mr. President. No, no, no. The most coveted title of heaven is when God says, my servant, my servant. Have you seen him? Have you seen him, Satan? I don't have anybody like him. He's my servant. To which Satan responds, of course he is. Why wouldn't he be? I mean, you've put him in golden handcuffs. You've put a financial fence around him. <laughs> Shoot. If, my if, if all ten of my kids lived in the trails of Brittany, if, if my face were plastered on the cover of Forbes magazine, if I netted a billion dollars tax-free every year, I'd serve you too. 
Job is pious because it pays. Don't you get it? Give me a break. Better still, let me break it. You take away all those gifts, you let me take away all those gifts, and I swear he will curse you to your face. Now listen. Don't talk about my kids. I mean, not like that. I'm reading this and I'm thinking, okay, God is going to, he's going to, he's just going to send him to hell. Wait a minute, I thought he already, I thought I already did. What are you doing? Get out. No, he doesn't, does he? He says, very well then, verse 12, very well, okay. Everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger in. See, even Satan is leashed. God is sovereign. And Satan is under God's sovereign control. And he goes after the presence of the Lord. And what follows here in the rest of this chapter are four fatal massacres. I mean, they're just... And his sons and daughters were feasting. One scholar thinks it was Job was just finishing his ritual sacrifice on behalf of them. And no sooner had the fires of his sacrifice cooled than a messenger came. And, and uh, you know, the oxen were plowing and the Sabians came and attacked. I'm the only one left to tell you. Storm number one. While he was still speaking, you know, lightning from heaven fell. Fire from heaven fell and burned up the sheep, incinerated the flock. I'm the only one left to tell you. Storm number three. While he was still speaking, the Chaldeans have come. They formed raiding parties. All of this is going on. Job is getting smashed on each side, sandwiched and smothered between the phrases while he was still speaking and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. And the final storm that came was, I think, a, a tornado. What kind of storm can cause all four corners of a house to collapse? His children, they're dead. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. Four fatal massacres. Job goes from everything to nothing. And notice what verse 20 says. <laughs> you know, he didn't put on a happy face. You know, he got up, he tore his robe. He shaved his head, symbols of intense grief. Who ever told God's people the lie that you just gotta, you know, be strong and suck it up and just you know, not show grief and emotion. That, that's a lie. Got up. His kids were dead. He tore his robe, but then he did the most profound thing. Verse 21. He fell to the ground in worship. And many of you know this verse that's about to come. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. And then notice what the rest of that verse says. Here's the Lord gave. Notice it doesn't say the Lord gave and the Sabians took away. Or the Lord gave and the Chaldeans took away. Or the Lord gave and Satan took away. He doesn't say that, does he? It says the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. God be praised. God be praised. And Job passes the test. 
Verse 22, in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. He passed the test. Satan accused Job of he's, he is pious because it pays. And how Job responded shows the exact opposite. He proved Satan to be a liar. He passed the test. And this is where I'm hoping that, oh, it's like Philemon. It's a short book. Let's get on to Psalms. No. It's just chapter 1, isn't it? Chapter 2 begins back up to heaven. We go from earth to heaven to earth, and now back to heaven. Another day, same scenario. The angels are summoned before the Lord. Satan is summoned before the Lord. Where have you come from? I've been roaming. And notice Satan doesn't bring up what happened in chapter 1. <laughs> he doesn't want to talk about it, but God does. Have you considered my servant Job? And no one like him. He's my man. He's, he's blameless, upright. He fears God. He shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason whatsoever. And Satan's response, hey, it was just a paper cut. Just skin for skin. That's what that means. It's skin for skin means I, have, I just scratched him. I just scratched the surface here. What? All he is is bankrupt and I killed his kids. What's that? A man will give all he has for his own life. But you stretch out your hand and you strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. And I'm thinking, God, surely you're not going to. And yet, look, very well. He's in your hands but you must spare his life. And the Bible says that Satan went out in verse 7, afflicted Job with painful sores, boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Verse 8 says that Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. Uh, later on in the book of Job, we're going to find out what some of these symptoms were. Huh. Like, like open sores, incredible itching. Job's appearance was disfigured. He experienced nightmares, running tears which blinded his eyes, burning fever. He was emaciated, charring of the skin. And he sat, it says, among the ashes, literally the ash heap, which was the garbage dump of the day. One scholar writes, here dung and other rubbish were thrown, and it was the resort of outcasts. Here, too, came the dogs of the town. Now, this was the guy who, before these storms, Job 29, 24 says, Job says, when I would smile at people, they scarcely believed it. And now, after the storms, Job 30, verse 10, they detest me and keep their distance. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. People are wondering, what's going on with this guy? What happened? And even his wife turns on him. Are you still holding? Are you Pull the plug and die, man. Curse God and die. 
Job says, you're talking like a foolish woman. And once again, a direct parallel to the end of chapter 1. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Job attributes both prosperity and pain as coming from the hand of God. And chapter 2, verse 10 says, In all this, just like 122, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Well, we better stop there. What is going on? What's this all about? We talk about suffering and... Yes, you know what? Suffering is at the surface of Job's life. That's true. But like ingredients to bake a cake... Suffering is but an ingredient of something broader, something larger, something more significant. You see, the deeper and harder que- there's a deeper and harder question, church family, than is why is there suffering? There's a deeper question than that. There's a deeper and, and, it, and there's a deeper question even than why do innocent people suffer? That there's there's something deeper. Here's the deeper question. And here's the question for us today. It was the question for Job, it's for us. And the question is this. What does God want from me? What does God expect from me when I experience unexplained suffering? What does God want? What does he want from Job? You see, as we look in these verses, we're going to learn that God is not the one on trial in these verses. Job is. And the question for Job is, Job, are you willing to love and worship God when it makes no sense to do so whatsoever? when it brings you no benefit whatsoever, just for the sake of who God is in and of himself, are you willing to do that, Job? That question is for us as well. What about me? Am I willing to worship God even when there is no self-serving reason at all? If you took away every reason to love God, would you? Would you? That's the issue. Worshiping God and loving Him for who He is in and of Himself. Not for reward, not for heaven, not for pleasure, not for poverty, not for sickness, not for health. At the core, the book of Job is not about suffering, it's about faith. Pure faith. Authentic faith. We talk about being a life-changing community of authentic believers, right? What does it mean to be an authentic believer? Some say, well, to be an authentic believer, you know, it means just being able to share your feelings, whatever they are. You know, I often do that to my wife and I make her cry. Well, I'm just telling you what's on my heart. Yeah, well, what's in your heart's toxic, huh? So what's authentic faith? What, what is that? Huh? It's this. Pure faith. Authentic faith is to at last sit on the ash heap of life, deprived of God's gifts and evidence of God's presence, and to love Him anyway. That's pure faith. That's the the faith that God is seeking here. 
Am I willing to love God when I'm deprived of my job, deprived of my possessions, deprived of my home, deprived of my children, deprived of my reputation, deprived of my health, deprived of spousal support? Would I love God anyway? Church family, it's a fair question. Why do you love God? Do you love God because it pays? You come to church because it's a great place to network for business? Do you love him because you live in America? Do you love him because the church has neat programs? Why do we love God? And what if he took it all away? What if he denied every gift from heaven? And then, and then, what if we were deprived of every shred of evidence that God exists Would we still love him? You see, that's the thing about suffering. Whenever we suffer, we want to know, God, where are you? But you know what, church family? We know the answer to that question because we've read chapters 1 and 2. We know where God is. Where is God? Well, he's in charge. He's on his throne. He's sovereign. He's receiving accountability reports from spirit beings. He sees our faithfulness and he unleashes, he rather leashes Satan's activities. And by the way, this is an important point. God only gives Satan enough freedom to accomplish that which is opposite of what Satan wants to do. God only gives Satan enough freedom to accomplish that which is opposite. What does Satan want to do? He wanted to prove that Job was pious because it paid. So God gave Satan the freedom to do that. And what happened? Just the opposite, right? Well, Satan says, I want to eliminate this grace thing. So God says, oh, very well. And what happens? He crucifies the Son of God. What does God do? He raises Jesus from the dead. God only gives Satan enough freedom to accomplish that which is the opposite of what Satan wants to do. So we know where God is. Here's the deal. Job doesn't know what we know. Job Job never finds out about what happens in this conversation in heaven. It's never discussed. God never brings it up. Job is never going to know. Never. And you say, yeah, but why? Why? Why doesn't God explain? And I'm glad you asked that question. You see, I... (laughs) I ask that question, and that reveals in my heart what is, I think, the most painful part of suffering when it happens, and it's the silence of God. I mean, you know, we think that if we just knew why, if God, you, if you would just tell me what's going on, then I'd feel better, and I'd understand, and everything would be hunky-dory. But I'm not so sure. I'm not. Speaking for myself, my hunch is that For every question I ask, and if God would happen to answer that question, I'd have 20 more questions. Yeah, well, okay, but God, why did you do it this way? Or why did you do it that way? God answers one question, and I have 20 more questions, and pretty soon it becomes clear. I'm the one who wants to be in charge. I'm the one who wants to play Roger Ebert, grilling God about his ways and critiquing his film. God's, uh, Paul says in Romans, shall the pot say to the potter, why did you make me like this? And the answer is, no, the pot will not say to the potter, why did you make me like this? And God will not entertain those questions because he is not the answerer and he is not the responder. He's the questioner. He's the initiator. 
And we fire questions to God as if he were the object, but God is never the object. He's the subject. One Bible teacher said that if you want to understand the book of Job, you just need to get, you need to get Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Ah, this is the key to understanding the mystery of Job. Here it is. God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's it. You see, God is the I am. He's not the he is. And if I am not willing to deal with him on that level, then I don't have authentic faith. But Job did. See, that's the thing. And that's what chapters 1 and 2 are about. Job has authentic faith because he sat on the ash heap of life, deprived of God's gifts and deprived of evidence of God's presence, and he loved God anyway. Satan accused him of being pious because it paid, and Job's response proved otherwise, and his faith encourages us even today. Oh, yeah. James chapter 5, verse 11 says, As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord has finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Church family, people are depending on your faith. I know that you're depending on my faith. I know that. I know that you're depending on the faith of our elders, our leaders. I know that. Others are depending on your faith. Your children are depending on your faith. Your friends, your faith matters. People are watching. You never know who you're influencing. Philip Yancey is a Christian author. He wrote, though we live in a planet in the outer suburbs of a galaxy that is one of about a million, million such galaxies in the entire universe, the Bible insists that God wants to use us to determine the future of this universe. Paul says we become a spectacle to the whole universe to angels as well as men. People are watching your faith. So the pressure's on. So go be like Job. <laughs> How? <laughs> how did he do it? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how he did it. <laughs> you know? I, I, mean, I don't know that Job knows how he did it. Job's not even going to be Job. As the chapters move on. But I know how we can do it. I know how we can do it. And here it is. And it's a good thing we're going to have communion in a few minutes. Here it is. Listen to this. See, Satan said, Satan said to God, hey, God, Job doesn't love you. He's using you. That's what Satan said. You know what? He's used that line before. You remember when he used that line last? Wasn't it in the Garden of Eden? When he said to Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, God doesn't love you. Well, yes, he does. I mean, he, he, he loves us. He told us not to eat of this. No, 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 he's just using you. Satan lied about God and Adam and Eve bought it. He told Adam and Eve, you totally trust God and he will crush you to powder. Even though there was no truth in it, Adam and Eve bought that lie. And that's why we have a hard time handling suffering, church. My main problem is I really don't believe that God loves me. I, oh, I, I, 
I read about it, I know it in my head, but in my heart, my soul lacks confidence that God loves me unstoppably and unconditionally. The most important person in the universe loves me, and yet my confidence is shaken when people don't give me what I need, when someone criticizes me, when I lose face, or when I lose my status or my comfort or my health, or my achievement. The reason why I have such a hard time with suffering is because I believe the lie of Satan. And what we need is to let God's love strengthen our faith. How do we know that God loves us? Oh, here's how. Church family, centuries later, Satan assaulted another innocent sufferer who died outside the city on an ash heap, naked, when Job suffered, he was, he was blameless and upright, but he was only relatively innocent. But Jesus, the true Job, was purely innocent. And although Job felt abandoned, we know in fact from chapters 1 and 2, he was not. Yet Jesus was truly abandoned. Jesus was the only person about whom God said, if you love me with all of your heart, I will ground you to powder and send you to hell. That's what happened. He's the only person who, and he's the only person who served God truly for nothing, and he is our proof. He is proof of God's love, and it's not because of anything we did. We, we, we need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, the ultimate Job, the ultimate innocent sufferer. God in human form loved us for who we were. He had all the glory. How did it benefit him to come for us? But he did, and he loved us just for who we were. And now as believers, we are called and, yes, even commanded to love him for who he is in himself. And that's authentic faith. To sit on the ash heap next to the cross, denied and deprived, and to love Jesus anyway. Jesus died not so that we would not suffer, but so that when we suffer, we will be like him. Thank you for your unstoppable, unceasing, eternal love, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you came from perfection to this sin-soaked world. And it did not benefit you one bit. But you came out of your love for us in and of ourselves. And that is evidence of your love. And whatever happens to us, good or bad, we know that you love us because you sent your son. Oh God, increase our faith in that love.
Amen.